Great. Thanks for the readings, Helen. Uh, friends, please do uh, turn back to Genesis 24. Uh, I might start this morning by saying something that um, many of you probably know uh, very well, and that is that if you have a child uh, who wishes to marry, then who they marry may present problems. Now, why do I say that? Well, here's one example. Before I married Michelle, her father recounted to me the story of what happened when he himself had sought the blessing of a potential father-in-law. Let's just say that the father in question didn't really like Michelle's dad. Um, A fairly simple reason for that, the, the the father was a farmer, Michelle's dad wasn't, and so that was a bit of a deal breaker as far as the farmer was concerned. And so the farmer, um, he had an idea. When Michelle's dad made the trip to the farm and asked for his blessing to marry his daughter, the father said, well, that's fine, no problem. Just do for me one thing. Tomorrow night, I want you to cook dinner. Now, Michelle's dad thought, well, that's fine, I can handle that, too easy. But then he added, we're having beef and the cows in the front paddock. (laughs) Now, look, I don't know what you would have done in that situation, but to sort of draw a line under that story, he killed the cow and got the girl. But we know the issue, don't we? If you have a child and they wish to marry, who they choose to marry can present problems. And so we come to Abraham and the one problem that he now faced... Now, I say the one problem because apart from that one issue, Abraham is quite content, actually. We, we see that in verse 1, we're told that Abraham was now very old and the Lord had blessed him in every way. Now, part of that blessing was, of course, his age. He'd lived a good many years, but more than that, he was wealthy, he had a kid, he had an heir, he was living in the promised land, the land of Canaan. So he's content, but he does have this one problem. His son, Isaac, the heir was not married. Now, I say um, not married, or I really should say not yet married, because God had promised that the descendants of Isaac would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And so, the fact that Isaac is not yet married, well, that's a problem. You know, how how is God going to fulfill His promise to give Isaac all these descendants if he's not yet married? Now, you're probably thinking at this point, well, why the urgency here? Is Abraham here just being an impatient grandfather-to-be? Or is he right to have this sense of urgency? Uh, I suspect there are two things going on here. The first thing is, well, Abraham's wife, Sarah, has died. We heard about that in the last chapter. And actually, at the end of this chapter, end of chapter 24, we do hear about how much Isaac was missing his mum. And so that's probably part of it. But the second reason, which I think is actually the most pressing is because Abraham himself is actually not far from death. Now, again, you might think, well, why is that even a problem? I mean, surely Isaac can find his own wife. He doesn't need his dad to sort of sort that out for him. But actually, Abraham doesn't want Isaac to find his own wife. And again, for two related reasons. What are they? Well, we're told about the first in verses 3 and 4. As he commissioned his servant to go out and find Isaac a wife... Abraham tells his servant that he must not choose someone from among the Canaanites. Instead, he's to go to my country and my own relatives and find a wife for my son Isaac. And so that's the first rule. 
Isaac's future wife must not be a Canaanite, but instead from among Abraham's sort of distant relatives. And so the servant is to head off, actually. Look amongst the family of Abraham's brother Nahor, who lived actually about a month's walk away. So that, that's, that's actually a long way. You might think, well, why that? You know, why? Well, it's not because Isaac's future wife had to follow the God of the Bible. I mean, it would have been ideal if she did, but actually at this point in history, the only people who followed the God of the Bible were Abraham's family in Canaan. And so given that, well, what's the next best option? Well, a Canaanite won't work because Abraham, he knows the future. Abraham knows that the Canaanite land, that's the land that God has promised to give to Isaac's descendants. And so down the track, those neighbours, they'll need to leave. And so to marry someone whose family will one day you'll be at war with, that's not a great idea. And so Abraham tells the servant that his future daughter-in-law can't be a Canaanite, but why a relative? I'm speculating at this point, but it's probably because any future wife, it makes sense to have a family connection because what that would mean is that her family would be more willing to let her go, more willing to let her go without insisting upon some other agreement like sharing land or or combining the two families together like that, which was common in those days. But whatever the case, that's the first rule. Any future wife can't be a Canaanite but is to be from Abraham's distant relatives. Now, that's the first rule. The second one, which in combination with the first, meant that Isaac couldn't find his own wife, was that Isaac was not to leave Canaan. Abraham makes that very clear in verse 6. He says to his servant, make sure that you do not take my son back there, by which he's referring to Mesopotamia. Why is that? Well, I think Abraham's concern here is if Isaac does go if he travels all the way to Mesopotamia, and if he does find a wife there, well, Abraham's worried that Isaac might not return. You can sort of imagine how that might happen. Isaac finds the perfect woman, but she can't bring herself to to leave her family, and so together they stay in Mesopotamia. Well, Abraham can't have that happen. God has placed Abraham in Canaan. That is where God's people were to live. That's why Isaac wouldn't let Abraham, I'm sorry, wouldn't let Isaac go. And so those are the two rules, and I think the servant seems to have understood them, but he does have this one question that will actually become a bit of a big thing later on. What if he does find Isaac a wife, but she simply refuses to return to Canaan with him? What should the servant do? Now, to me, this is actually one of the key turning points in the passage, but actually also one of the key moments in Abraham's journey of faith. Because think about it for a moment. Uh, Abraham, he understands how significant a moment this is. If God's promises to his descendants are to be fulfilled, then Isaac has to find a wife. And so at this point, we'll say it's great that Abraham has taken this responsibility on to see this happen. He he doesn't ignore the problem. He doesn't bury his head in the sand. He, He doesn't just figure that God will take care of it somehow. He takes responsibility for it, But what if Abraham's plan to achieve that gets derailed? What if this potential wife won't come back with the servant? What should the servant do? Again, a key turning point, a key test of Abraham's trust. Because in the past, and and really there have been so many times in the past, when circumstances arose that seemed to threaten 
from a human perspective, the fulfillment of God's promises. And what we saw Abraham do on so many occasions was to foolishly try and sort it out himself, which usually involved him doing something fairly dodgy. For example, you might think about the the son he had with Hagar to try and overcome Sarah's inability to conceive. That wasn't a good choice. That was a foolish thing that Abraham did. Or again, he lied about Sarah being his wife. He actually did that on a couple of occasions because he didn't trust that God would protect them. Which is to say that in the past, when, when things seemed from a human perspective to be getting in the way of God fulfilling his promises, rather than trusting that God would actually sort it out, Abraham took matters into his own hands and ended up doing something that he shouldn't have done. And so what about now? Has Abraham learnt his lesson? Well, let's hear what Abraham says to his servant from verse 7. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land and who spoke to me and promised me on earth, saying, to your offspring I will give this land... He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you'll be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. Okay, that's a big moment. Let me suggest that in these words we have evidence of a huge step in Abraham's journey of faith. We might even say that this is definitive evidence of a new Abraham. Now, it's not out of the blue, right? We we first saw evidence of this change when he was willing to offer Isaac a couple of weeks back. At that point, Abraham was willing to sacrifice the heir through whom the promises would come, which from a human perspective, that seemed crazy. Crazy to do something that seemed to be actively working against the fulfillment of God's promises. But Abraham was willing to do it because he trusted God. He trusted that even if Isaac were to to die, God would somehow raise him from the dead and fulfill his promises through him, just as he said he would. Well, here again, we're seeing that same trust. As Abraham declares that if the woman refuses to come back to Canaan, that's okay. Abraham trusts that God will fulfill his promise through some other means. Which is to say that Abraham, Abraham here doesn't tell his servant to do something dodgy. He doesn't tell the servant to try and trick her into coming back with him. He doesn't tell the servant to somehow try and coerce her into coming. And Abraham is convinced that God will do what he promised. And so if the woman will not leave her family, then that's fine. Don't do anything dodgy. All that means is God will fulfill his promise through some other way. That's why I love this period of Abraham's life from about chapter 22 onwards. We start to see someone who, who takes seriously his responsibility to see God's promises fulfilled, while at the same time, and just as importantly, never losing sight of the reality that ultimately God is the one who will fulfill the promises in precisely the way that he has chosen. And so Abraham, he doesn't need to force it. He doesn't need to fulfill God's promises through exactly the means that he thinks God should do as if the fulfilment of these promises somehow depended upon him. Again, it's a wonderful period of Abraham's life. And actually, that's the lesson that I think we should be reminded of today. Because I think we can make two critical errors when it comes to holding together, on one hand, our responsibility, and on the other, God's sovereignty. 
Because sometimes we just don't take our responsibilities in the Lord seriously enough. Instead, actually, we can tend to fall back on God's sovereignty. Abraham could have decided to not worry at all about finding Isaac a wife. Abraham could have just figured that because God is sovereign, then he will sort it out. Now, of course, there is some truth in that. Strictly speaking, God doesn't need us to do anything. But at the same time, God does graciously work through us such that it would have been wrong for Abraham to at least not try to find Isaac a wife. What about us today? Uh, Are there areas in your life where you have essentially given up on your responsibilities in the Lord Jesus? Uh, Today, we're celebrating Sarah's ministry amongst us. Uh, Recognising that Sarah and the teams that she have led, they've done a wonderful job teaching our kids. Now, one question coming out of this passage for the parents is simply this, have you fulfilled your responsibility? Now, I ask that because the teaching that the kids receive both here on Sunday mornings and also in their midweek programs, as good as it is, is only ever intended to be supplementary. That's supplementary, that's in addition to what the kids should be receiving at home. But that's not always the case. What can happen is that when the teaching at church is that good, as a parent, you can be tempted to think that you don't need to worry about it, that the kids, well, they're already getting everything that they need. And so you you shirk your responsibility and you figure, well, now God can take care of the rest. Well, that's not right. Uh, Sarah would be the first to say that her ministry to our children does not replace the parent's responsibility. Because once again, even though God is sovereign, and even though God doesn't need us in order for His purposes to be fulfilled, we must take our responsibilities seriously. And so have we been doing that? Now, the other way that we sometimes fail to hold together the tension that is our responsibility and God's sovereignty is that we just don't take God's sovereignty seriously enough. So to tackle the same issue from another angle... Sometimes as a parent, you know full well that you are not doing a great job right now. You're spending too much time at work, perhaps. You're totally preoccupied with some other big thing that is, seems to be all-consuming, such that the family, the kids, they're not really getting your best. Now, from time to time, that happens to all of us, right? Now, things pop up, they can be all-consuming for a while. If that's constantly happening, of course, then things have to change, but... Sometimes things are happening that will mean that the kids, they're just not seeing you as they need to. You're not able to invest in them as individuals. You're not able to talk to them one-on-one. You're not able to do together things that they love to do. And there's just no space to talk about life, to talk about what following Jesus means, the joys and the struggles. Now, again, if, if that's the norm for you, then things have to change. But sometimes life will throw up a season like that. And what God's sovereignty means is that we actually don't need to beat ourselves up about that. Like Abraham in today's passage, we'll do our best given the circumstances and then we can leave it up to God. And so where are you at? Are you taking seriously your responsibilities in the Lord Jesus? 
That's not just for parents, right? That's for all of us. A responsibility to minister to others, to evangelize others, to teach others, to grow others. Or are we not taking God's sovereignty seriously enough? By thinking that the outworking of God's plans are entirely depending on me. That everything must happen the way that I think they should happen. That's worth pondering, friends. Well, as we come to the next section of our text, which runs from verses 20, um, 10 to verse 27, I'm aware I'll need to scarper through this text. Um, it is the biggest narrative unit in Genesis, and so there's details of plenty here, so we'll be moving fairly quickly. But notice the problem that the servant encounters. Now that he's arrived in Mesopotamia, it's his question of exactly how to identify the woman that God has chosen. Now, as readers, we should already know who this is going to be. Back in Genesis chapter 22, verses 20 to 24, in the genealogy presented there, genealogy in which daughters are not normally mentioned, Rebecca pops up. But more than that, in that genealogy, she's actually the only child of the third generation who's mentioned. Now, that's especially interesting since her brother Laban, he's actually going to play a fairly major role this morning, but also later on in Genesis, he's not even mentioned. And so for the savvy reader... We already suspect that Rebecca will feature prominently. But of course, the servant has no idea. He's now hundreds of kilometres from home without access to a priest or a prophet. So he, he's just not able to access the God-given means of guidance. And so what does the servant do? Well, he has no choice. He must rely upon God's providence. As he prays from verse 12, Lord, the God of my master Abraham, make me successful today. And show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I'm standing beside this spring, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too, let her be the one that you've chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Now, why might the servant assume that God would answer his prayer in exactly the manner in which he asked? I mean, as Christians, we know that God answers, hears our prayers, but we're, we're not necessarily assured that He'll answer them in the manner that we've asked. Why can the servant be so sure? Well, it's because this is another key moment in salvation history. That's why God answers this prayer so quickly and in the exact manner that the servant asks. This is a key moment in salvation history. And so from verse 15, before he'd finished praying, Rebecca came out with a jar on her shoulder she was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother, Nahor. And so, even before the servant had finished praying, Rebekah appears, and she's ready to draw water. And more than that, in verse 16, we're told that not only was she beautiful, she was also a virgin, before she then passed the first test. From verse 17, the servant hurried to meet her and said, "'Please, give me a little water from your jar.'" Drink, my Lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands to give him a drink. And so she passes the first test, and just as quickly she passes the second, as she then offers to water his camels, from verse 19. After she'd given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too, until they have had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough for all of his camels." 
Now, let's not underestimate just how incredible this is, that the servant prays and that God immediately answers that prayer. Well, that's incredible. We, we should note that watering these camels, that is, that is no mean feat, right? To quench the thirst of 10 camels, it's estimated that Rebecca probably made at least 80 trips carrying this water jar that held something like a dozen litres. That's quite something, with the result that this servant is convinced Rebecca must be the one, and that's why he gives the gold jewels in verse 22. But it's also worth pondering, and I think that the text brings this out, why Rebecca did this. Why show such hospitality? Why do all the work Why the servant seems to just sit there watching? Was she just a, a very compassionate woman? Did she sort of think this was just the right thing to do? Or did she notice that this man was very much connected to someone very wealthy? Which is to ask, did she notice that the camels were, were overloaded with all kinds of good things? Hard to uncover motives, right? But I should say on this, I think we have a tendency to ascribe to biblical characters very pure motives, which we often subsequently realise were perhaps best at mixed, uh, mixed at best, is what I should say. I think that's actually been one of the features of this series on Abraham, and it also popped up in the series on David as well. As we've taken a close look at Abraham and the decisions that he made, what we've seen is that Abraham wasn't always the squeaky clean person that we might have thought him to be. And so as we come back to this passage, even though the timing of the answer to this prayer is really quite miraculous. Just the number of times in this narrative that we're told about the gold and the silver and the fine clothing and and all the rest, how the servant talks about just how extremely wealthy Abraham is. Uh, Let me suggest we don't need to look too far to determine why Rebecca might have thought it a good idea to look after this servant. But whatever the case, now the tension shifts. We're no longer wondering if the servant will find the right woman, the bigger question is whether Rebecca will, will leave her family. And while initially things seem to go well, you know, the, the servant is invited to stay, um, Rebecca's mum says, come on in, Rebecca's brother Laban says, yes, come on in. And then having recounted the series of events that led him to identify Rebecca as being the one, Laban and Bethuel, they're apparently persuaded, right? In verse 50, they both reply, this is from the Lord, We can say nothing to you one way or the other. Here is Rebecca, take her and go, and let her become the wife of your master's son as the Lord has directed. And so things are looking kind of good. It almost actually sounds like these are godly people willing to accept God's plans. Except, as we've sort of highlighted, that the servant is carrying very valuable cargo and the servant has laboured to tell them just how wealthy Abraham is, and of course, the moment that they say this, they accept, they're given these costly gifts. And just on this, if you, if you sort of read ahead, you know that Laban is the same guy who we meet in chapter 29. Now, what do we find out about him there? Well, he's a bit of a trickster, he's a polytheist, and I think we can probably say an all-round bad guy, actually. And so again, don't, don't unthinkingly ascribe good motives here, which is simply to say that we shouldn't expect things to go smoothly from this point. And sure enough, the next morning rolls around. When it comes time to leave, well, that's when the mother and the brother seem to change their mind. In verse 55, they both said, 
well, let the young woman remain with us 10 days or so, then you may go. Now, the servant probably suspects that the family is now trying to back out of this deal, or at the very least, perhaps they're trying to get more gold from the servant. But whatever the case, the servant presses the issue, saying, don't detain me. Now that the Lord has granted success to my journey, send me on my way so that I may go to my master. So this is getting fairly awkward. By way of a circuit breaker, the family then says, well, let's see what Rebecca wants to do. Now, I suspect the family probably figured that Rebecca would choose to stay. That might force the, the servant to offer more incentives. Because you think, well, surely it's difficult for, for Rebecca to choose to leave her family. To go with a stranger to marry someone that she's never met. A family that serves a God that you don't know. With a strong possibility that you will never return to your family. Surely that's, that's tough for Rebecca to sign up to. And yet when they ask Rebecca, will you go with this man? She, she just says yes. Why? Why'd she say yes? Again, I don't think we should be too quick to ascribe godly motives here. I don't think she says yes because she believes it would be an honour to become a key part of the fulfilment of God's promises. More likely, I suspect, Rebecca is thinking that she'd love to be the leading lady of a large and wealthy family. Which is to say, we've actually seen a bit of this in this series. So much of what we read in Genesis is meant to be descriptive, not prescriptive. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, look, if we want to seek guidance today, do we imitate the servant? We think about what car to buy, used prices are so expensive, whatever, we're trying to work out what we should buy. Do we, do we pray to God saying, you know what, the next car that I see, whatever it is, a U-turn at traffic lights, I know it's illegal, don't do it, but next car I see that, do, that does that, well, is that the type of car that I'll buy? Is that what you're saying to me? Or if we're looking for a marriage partner, do we send a friend to a faraway far land to find someone who doesn't follow God but who might be willing to marry you sight unseen? Uh, the answer is no, right? What we're reading here is descriptive. It describes how God fulfilled His promises. It's not prescriptive. It's not telling us what we should do. Indeed, when it comes to finding a marriage partner, the Apostle Paul is very clear they must be in the law, which is to say Christians marry Christians. And so Genesis largely contains descriptive accounts of how God fulfilled His promises. And what we've seen at times is that God does this in, in some weird and actually wonderful ways. But He does it through, at times, people who we must not imitate. Now, to wrap this up, uh, actually, that's what we see in the cross, don't we? The most weird and wonderful way that God ultimately fulfilled all His promises was through the King of God's people dying for the sin of his people. Sounds very strange, doesn't it? That's an event that we don't imitate. We're not called to somehow die on a Roman cross. Instead, what we do, just like as we look back on the way that God partially fulfilled his promises in the Old Testament, what we do today, we look back with wonder and amazement and we give thanks for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are in control of all things. But we do ask that we would never let this great truth lead us to laziness in following you. 
Rather, may your utter sovereignty bring us great comfort. Because even when life seems so crazy, we know that you are able to bring about your incredible plans and purposes. And we see that so clearly in the death of the Lord Jesus for us. And we pray this in his name. Amen.